We are in the book of Colossians. We will be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, starting there today. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. And like I always say, if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep it. But Colossians 1, 15 to 17 is our text today. And actually, I have decided during this paragraph here, from about verse 15 to about verse 23, we're going to slow way down and look at the details because it functionally serves as a foundation to the entire book. I want to make sure we get it right before we get to the details of how do I live out this doctrine of who Christ is and what he has done for us. But let me ask you a few questions. How important is it that we get the details about the person and work of Christ correct? So when I say the person and work, I mean who is he in relationship to God the Father? Who is he in relationship to you and me? And what has he done on the cross? How important is it that we get those details correct? Okay. What if we're wrong? But we're sincerely wrong. Okay, you know what I mean by that? People, we're wrong all the time. I'm wrong all the time about things. But, but I'm sincere and I'm not trying to be wrong or trying to deceive anybody. But if I'm sincerely wrong about the doctrine of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for us, does it really matter? You think God cares? The question is, does our error affect our salvation and or the glory of God? So let me do this. I want to take you through a, a survey. This is my introduction, by the way. And I, I only decided to do this at the last minute because I, it came out Thursday that I saw it. I'd already sent the slides to Elena and then I sent her a new slide yesterday. Okay, we're changing things. Every year, Ligonier Ministries, which was the ministry of R.C. Sproul, if you know who he is, he's, he's passed away. Um, every year, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Publishers puts out a survey of Christian beliefs. And preparing this sermon, this, this survey hits me right between the eyes, thinking about what we're going to talk about today from Colossians and today and, and multiple weeks ahead. So... The, the survey made comments, simply made a statement, then asked, do you agree or disagree? And some of the questions, some of the results were, here's what all adults believe, and here's what evangelicals believe. Now, I have to define the word evangelical for you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that morphs in meaning over time. But generally, what evangelical means as a general rule is evangelical Christians are people who believe and this goes back to Martin Luther, this word and, and this movement called the evangelicals. Evangelicals believe the Bible is the authority, the word of God. They believe that Jesus Christ, son of God, has come to die on the cross, to be buried and raised again, to save us from our sins through faith alone, by grace through faith. That makes you an evangelical. And so... When people claim, I'm an evangelical, look at the response of evangelicals to these, these statements. Here's the first one on biblical authority. Go put that first one up. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 53% of U.S. adults believe that. But look at the next one. Is there another, there's another addition to that, Leslie? 
No, go back. I'm sorry. There should be another line there that says, go ahead and put it back up. I apologize. Maybe I didn't send it to her. 26% of evangelicals believe the Bible is full of myths and can't be literally taken as true. That's us. Okay, so I want you to ask this. I don't want anybody saying, yeah, I agree with that statement, and then, then have me say you're wrong. I'll say that later. <laughs> Let's look at a few more. This is on God. Go to the next one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals agree with that statement. That's called universalism. Universalism is the belief that Jesus died on the cross for all people. Is that not correct? People, we argue about that all the time. Not only did he die for them, also they'll all be saved, whether they actually believe in Jesus or not. It's called universalism. And the scriptures teach utterly the opposite, clear as a bell. That is not a true statement. But half of us believe it is a true statement. So something's gone wrong. As we think about these things, I want to talk about what's gone wrong, hopefully here in a minute. The next one. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of evangelicals agree with that. What I'm going to teach you today from Colossians is that's an utter lie. An absolute lie. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus became incarnate. The eternal son of God became a human, true human. But he, as the son of God, is eternal. He is not created. It is so important to the gospel, but three out of four of us would say, yeah, that's a true statement. By the way, that is the ancient heresy of Arianism. And it was condemned in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea and then 50 years later at the Council of Constantinople. So... It's been revived because it's actually somewhat reasonable. Go back, go back to the first one, Leslie. I'm going to turn these, these things into my whole sermon. So go, no, go to the second one about all religions. Okay. Why is this one so appealing to people? Pardon me? And, and, and it doesn't leave anyone out. And it also rescues us from saying we're the only right ones. That's a very uncomfortable place to be today. All you other ones are wrong. We're right. That's, that can be arrogant. And when we say it, it can be arrogant. But the, and the cultural, the cultural um, milieu, you might want to say, is accept everybody and everything. So you Christians are closed-minded, short-sighted, and arrogant. Whether or not the culture likes it or not can't be determined what is true. This has to determine what's true. Then how we present it must be presented in a manner that it can be received. But we firmly believe in this church that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the... And no one comes to the Father but through him. So, let's go to the last one. No, there's two more. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agree with that. Um, again, I want you to listen to C.S. Lewis. This is what he says about this in his book, Mere Christianity. You must make a choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Is Jesus a great teacher? Of course he is. But that's not who he is at the core identity. It wasn't an option he gave us. He's the Lord of the universe, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. As C.S. Lewis goes on to say, a lunatic on the level of a, someone who claims to be a poached egg. British humor, I guess. The last one. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 66% of adults agree with that. 57% of evangelicals agree with that. Now, I understand this one. Because when I compare myself to you or you to me, we can usually say, yeah, I'm good compared to him. So when it's a comparison this level, but scripture tells us don't compare to each other, compare to the righteousness of God. And when we compare ourselves to the righteousness of God, what does it say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's why Jesus came to die. But if this is true, if really you just have a few little sins, overall you're basically good, why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross for you? So here, here's my point in bringing this survey up. Something's gone wrong in evangelical circles. Either I'm not teaching it well and people who stand here in, in churches all across the country, or you're not listening. You're listening more to the culture than to the scripture or the sermons. We're not going to blame this. So let's, is it my fault or your fault? Take a vote. <laughs> it's both. I think churches have been so worried about being acceptable in culture, which we want the people out there to come here and feel welcome, do we not? But why do we want them to come here? so they can hear the truth about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for them. But if we water that down to make it more acceptable, then we are accomplishing nothing. And so today, Colossians, we step into the beginning of correcting these lies. And so if you are someone in this room who answered, I agree with those statements, my purpose isn't to, to offend you, that, that, that one always bugs me. I never want to be offensive, ever. And I don't, I don't think I am. Some people think my sense of humor is a bit offensive, but I've tried to change and I can't because of that one thing that said, but the sin nature. Um, but we have to hold to a truth that might offend people. And my greatest value can't be, are you offended? My greatest value must be, have I properly spoke the truth to you and how you receive it's on you, not on me. Does that make sense? All right, so now we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. And if you'd pull out your bulletin and get the insert out, that might help you to follow along. And we're going to look at three short verses. I'm going to read them all to you now. There won't be a slide for this. Just listen. Here's the three short verses. He, that is Jesus, is the image 
115, by the way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the extent of our message passage today. This is deep theology. So this sermon functions as a foundation to build through the rest of the whole book. So p- please hang with me. I am, I'm going to jump in deep. But I need, I need, I need you to, to work through this in your mind. If you agreed with some of those statements, especially about who Christ is, then I need you to ask what does Scripture say, not what does Tony think, what do I think, what does Scripture say, and see if we can do that today. So first of all, verse 15 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're going to look at one line at a time. The first one represents his relationship to the Father. The second one represents his relationship to creation. He's the image of the invisible God. So invisible God. So at the core of God's being, when I say that God, ultimately, ultimately I'm referring to the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, at the core of their essence... They do not have physical bodies. They are not part of creation. So therefore, to creation, they are invisible. Does that make sense? Let me show you this, how it explains this about God and specifically the Father. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So... God is immortal and invisible. He picks it up again at the end of the book. In chapter 6, verse 15 and 17. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. This statement, I could spend all day on every statement here. Only one person can be sovereign. Do you get that? You can't have two sovereigns. You know what that's called? War. (laughs) Because one's going to prove to the other one they're sovereign. He's the only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, which is amazing imagery if you think about it. If you've ever had you know, your kids climb up and flash a, a flashlight in your face, you know, and you can't see, imagine an unapproachable light that is, that is utterly crippling to you, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the first thing we establish in the phrase, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is to establish that God in his essence cannot be seen by creatures. Impossible. No one has ever seen him, nor can we see him. So it makes sense. We've got to come back to that. Do you get that? Now, so now we get asked the question, if, if God is invisible and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what does that mean that he's the image? God in his transcendence is unknowable and unapproachable. It's very important. 
in his transcendence, that means he's above us all in, his, in that sovereignty, in that place that, that he's far above creation, he's unknowable and unapproachable until he makes himself known and makes himself approachable. You think through all the Old Testament appearances of God. He appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Adam and Eve. He appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Moses. And, and when he appeared to Abraham, he appeared as a man. He walked up to him. But he's not a man. God doesn't have a body. The Bible's clear on that. We learn that from Exodus chapter 34 when he appeared to Moses. And Moses, I want to see your glory. Do you remember what God said? You can't see my face. Moses asked to see his glory. But God communicated to Moses in a way he would understand. You can't see my face. The face represents the true person. I can turn my back and you could go, hey, that looks like Tony's big head. But when I turn around, oh, it is Tony. Because my face is my identity. The glory of God is the core identity of him. And Moses, I want to see who you are. I want to see your core identity. I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. If you see my face, you will die. No one has ever seen God, nor can they. So that's very important as we move forward here. Jesus Christ came so that we could know the only true God. I want to come back to this invisible thing. So if I don't come back, say, hey, what about the invisible thing? Okay, Michelle? Okay. Michelle doesn't got a problem talking to me, you know. I mean that as a compliment. So this is what the gospel of John is getting at. The word became flesh. John chapter 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the, the logos, which is Jesus. He was with God and he was God which is the beginning of the doctrine of the Trinity. We have one God who is both the Father and the Son, who are two distinct people, as we learn. Eventually, the Holy Spirit is brought into this teaching. So we have one God who is eternally the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So John brings this to us, this word in John 1.1, now in John 1.14, and the word became flesh, that is, he took on a human body, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's the incarnation, this eternal word that was in the beginning with God. Before anything was created, he existed with the Father. He takes on human flesh. It's called the incarnation. Do you know what the word incarnation means? Do you guys know what chili con carne is? This is silly, but it works. What is chili con carne? What is chili? Beans. Chili con carne is chili with meat. The incarnation is God takes on meat. That's what it is. A little Latin and Spanish um, lesson there. Now, verse 18. After we hear the word became flesh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God or the only, the only begotten God, the, the Hebrew there, we talk, or the Greek there, we talk about that later, who is at the side of the Father, he has made him known. So God in his essence cannot be known or seen. That applies to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Unless he makes himself known and makes himself seen. 
as I said, the Old Testament, there's many ways God revealed himself to creation. But the ultimate revelation is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's the one who has come to make known to us who the Father is. And ultimately, it's John 14. I think it's Thomas. Is it Thomas or Philip? I always forget. One of those guys. I didn't put it in my notes. says, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Not because Jesus and the Father are the same person. They're not. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God took on human form for many reasons. One of those reasons was, was to communicate with us to make his Father knowable. And so that we could experience Jesus and say, now I, now, now I know what God is like. Because I've seen him in human flesh. As 1 John chapter 1 says, I've touched him, I've beheld him, I've studied him. And we want to share that person with you is what 1 John is all about. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. This is one of the most amazing passages. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We'll come back to that. He is, look at this, you guys. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So we can't push this too far. All analogies fall short. But the glory of God, and then, and then when, when something is glorious, I mean, it, it just shines. What do you feel? You feel the radiance from that shine. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. You want to sense and feel God? Get to know the Savior. Then the next phrase is, is, should blow us away. The exact imprint of his nature. This verse alone should totally throw out the idea that Jesus is a created being. In his essence, the Son of God is eternal with his Father. There's no way Jesus, the Word of God, could be created because if he was, he could not be the exact representation of God's nature. But Jesus became human, right? So let me deal with this idea of the image. I have to tie my shoe, by the way, because um, I'm going to fall. And, um, and then some people might laugh at me. He's laughing right now. So Jesus is the image of God. But aren't we image bearers too? So aren't there many image bearers of God? So let, let me define the difference. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But you know what scripture says about us? It says that we are made in the image. We are made according to the image. But we are not the image. This is a categorical difference between the son of God and all created human beings. If Jesus is the image, but we are made in the image of our creator, we are made according to the image of our creator. And who's our creator? God is, but specifically, 
Jesus is. We're going to see that very clearly. I am made according to his image. And he is the image. And when I sinned, guess what happened to this image? It got all muddied up and distorted. So what's Jesus coming to do? On the cross he came to do it. Every day he's doing it. And he'll come back at the second coming and do it. Restore you and I back to his image. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Galatians in 4.19, I'm in labor again until Christ is formed in you. There's only one image of God, Jesus Christ. But everyone he created is made according to his image. There's something about you and me that is like Jesus that is being restored to us. Does that make sense? It's very important to understand there's only one image of God. We, we reflect that image in us, but we are not the image. So, if no one has ever seen God, nor can they. And Moses, God says to Moses, if I show you my glory, my true essence, you will die. You'll melt on the spot. Just think back to, to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then Jesus must be equal with the Father whom he images. Or he could not see him, or he could not know him. He must be equally God, or he could not reveal him to us. Does that make sense? All right. Christ's relationship to creation. That was one half of one verse, all of that. So Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, before we look at that, I want to do a little word play here. Um, you know all words have a range of meaning. Do you understand that? Every word has a range of meaning. And its meaning is determined by the context. So I want to do something. Put the word trunk up there. Tell me what that means. So I say trunk. What am I saying? Trunk of trees. Suitcase. Trunk of a car. Elephant. My body. I've done this in, in Bible college classes I teach. We've come up with nine definitions before. Communication line, a trunk line. That's a very technical term. All the wires come together in the phone company. It was called the trunk line. We have a smart man down here. That's six. How about, so when I say trunk, what am I referring to? There's no context. I hit the trunk. Donald Trump. We just added a tenth one. I'm going to do that next time. Yes. <laughs> See, that, that's a person. Then you can use it as a, a verb too. You know? Donald Trump, you said? You threw me off. You threw me off. Okay. Gosh. I'm easily sidetracked. Don't do that to me. Um. I'm totally lost now. <laughs> I hit the trunk. Have any of our meaning, meanings been eliminated? Maybe elephant. What idiot hits an elephant? How about I hit the trunk with an axe and yelled timber? See, then, then that sentence alone, your mind doesn't even work through the options for the word trunk. 
your mind immediately processes and eliminates all possible meanings for trunk because the context is, is clear. I'm talking about a tree. So all words have a range of meaning based on a context. Now we have this phrase, Jesus is the firstborn. In the ESV, go ahead and put that 115 up again if you do it, please. The ESV says he is the firstborn of all creation. Most of the other translations say he is the firstborn over all creation. Right? So both grammatically are correct. But the context requires he is firstborn over all creation. So here we have he is the image of the invisible God. The invisible son of God became human and could be seen, touched, beheld, heard, and he's come to reveal the Father to us. So in his incarnation, he now assumes the position of firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn has three basic meanings to it. So you got to stay with me here. This is where we're going to get in the weeds. Or, or we're going to the deep end now. The rest of that was shallow end. Now we're going to the deep end. Firstborn can mean the first person to open a woman's womb. Your first child born. If you have children, tell me the name of your firstborn. There's only two firstborn in this room? My firstborn is Zach. Okay? So it's used that way. It's, used that, it's not used that way in Scripture as much as you might think it is. But, but the firstborn child is the firstborn person. So the word firstborn literally refers to the first child born. Well, it's not referring to Jesus as the first child born because he wasn't the first child born. So... The second range of meaning comes from that. It gets rid of the idea of being born, but it refers to the first one in an order of priorities. Okay? So we have number one, number two, number three, number four. And it can apply to all sorts of different things. In a minute we're going to see, or next week we'll see, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one raised from the dead. And the rest of us will follow. But there's a third meaning that flows from these other two. In biblical culture, the first child born had privileges above the other children. Okay? Um, the firstborn also simply means supreme over. It's lost the idea of birth and even lost the idea of an order of one, two, three, four. It's simply a word to describe your relationship to that which you are over. So Jesus, as the image bearer of God, or as the image of God, in his incarnation is also firstborn over all creation. And let me show you how the word firstborn is used in this way. I want you to see, um, oh, where did I put it? Psalm 89, talking about David. 89.26, he shall cry to me, you are my father. This is what David's going to say to God. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now this is what God says back to David. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So here's the same word used again, where God is going to make David the firstborn, which is then defined for us as the highest of the kings of the earth. Supreme over all the kings of the earth. So we talk about order. Is David the first king born? Is David the first king in the world? 
Is he the first king of Israel? He's the second king of Israel. So none of the first two meanings apply to him. God is using this word to refer to David as simply the number one supreme over all other kings. That is my chosen person, David. Of which, by the way, who is Jesus? The son of David. He adopts this. Jesus is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. So here's the word, again, used in Scripture to refer to someone who is supreme over all kings. Now it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is supreme over all creation and has control of it, which is what exactly what verse 16 says to us. Look at, listen to verse 16 now. We'll look on the screen. So the phrase, he is the firstborn of all creation because... Here's why he's firstborn. By him, all things were created. How, how many things? Keep that in mind. In all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Up there you see the word by, created by him, created through him and created for him. All things are created by Jesus. All things. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, everything was created by the word, the logos, Jesus. And there's nothing that was created that was not created by Jesus. So how can Jesus be created? He can't be because he's the creator of all things. Now, Arians are the people that believe, this is a fourth century heresy, that believe Jesus was a created being. God created a lesser God, called him Jesus, and then created everything else through Jesus. But there was a time when Jesus did not exist, according to the Arians. Today, and this isn't to pick or to, to insult other churches, it's to teach you. Today, we have modern-day Arians in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus is a lesser being than the Father, created by the Father, and then he created everything else. So much so that in this passage, look up there, it says, because by him all things were created. In their translation, the New World Translation, they put in by him all other things were created. Because Jesus is a thing. But you have to put that in there. It doesn't say that. So Jesus Christ is the creator of everything that exists, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, authorities, and rulers or rulers and authorities, which is the unseen spiritual realm. That's not referring to the kings of the earth. That, that is Paul's terminology for the angels and demons. Jesus is the creator of all that. After he created it, some of the angels fell and became the demonic realm. But Jesus still is supreme over it all. It's who he is. And because that's who he is, he deserves to be worshipped. Do you get that? The early church established that, and that was one of the problems with Arianism, because they wouldn't worship Jesus. And if your background is Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't worship Jesus because he's not worthy of worship. He's a creature. You don't worship creatures. That's idolatry. But if Jesus is one with Father, in essence, is God, he deserves our worship. And that's what we do in this church. All things are created by him, through him. Scripture talks about Jesus being the creator or the father through the son creating. It talks about both. 
But the neat part here is all things created for him. We exist for the son. I take a breath every day for him. That should be my attitude. When I wake up every day, I should say, I belong to you, Jesus. You're my creator. In a minute, we're going to see you're my sustainer. And my very existence is for you. If we approach that day, if I approach every day like that, I think it would change my day. Too often it's, God, I got a tough day today. Would you be for me today? Now, now is God for you? So nothing wrong with that prayer. But let's first establish that I'm first for him. Not, I'm for you, Jesus, but I exist for his glory. Then, when I get that down, then my prayer can be, God, I need you today. Would you be for me today? A couple more and then we're done. Another reason he is firstborn over all creation is he is temporally prior to all things. Now, don't read that word as temporarily. Thank you. Different spelling. I knew I shouldn't have used the word because I wouldn't be able to say it. Temporally means when it comes to time, Jesus exists before time because he's God. And this is a little statement. He is before all things. He created all things. All things are created by him through him and for him, and he's before all of them. He, he, he is preexistent before creation, and he's eternal before creation. Other scriptures can bring that out. And then lastly, he is the sustainer of all things. And this is one of the coolest ones in this passage. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this, this one, some of you with a scientific mind can need to work on this one to, to help me understand it. He's the creator of all. But you guys know what deism is? Deism is the belief we have this great God creator who created the universe. He spun it like a top and then backed away into the heavens and watches what we do with that top. But he's not involved in that creation. So he's transcendent over it. But deism teaches that he does not get intricately involved in it. And, and some of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson for one, was a deist. Did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. Did not believe that he rose from the dead. In fact, he edited the Bible to take all that out. He believed in God, the creator, but that he walked away and now he watches what we do with his creation. And someday he'll come back and judge us for what we do with the creation. That's deism. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says God formed all things, the sun specifically. He spun it in motion and then he keeps it turning. And he's intricately involved in the whole thing. So he holds all things together. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, 3. I already read it to you, but let me read um, this specifically. Jesus is the radiance of God's... Let, read it with me. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, stop there. Hebrews confirms it with different terminology. How did God create the world? Spoke it. We're going to get to 2 Peter chapter 3 someday in this church. And it says he's going to speak a word again and it will be destroyed. So he created it by speaking. He will speak it someday. He'll destroy it with fire. He'll say the word. In the meantime, he upholds it by the word of his power. And we could really play with this one. God spoke and the world was created. And John refers to Jesus as what? 
the word. Jesus is that spoken word, the son in relationship to the father. And now that word, Jesus Christ, is still upholding everything. You are alive today because Jesus said so. When he, when he decides today is your day to come to me, he'll speak the word. Now we can go, well, science says I'll die from cancer. Science says I'll get this. A car accident takes, oh, not car, science doesn't say that, but a car accident takes me out. That's the circumstances. Jesus is, is the sustainer of it all for his purposes. And this stuff is, um, it just blows me away. That our creator, the transcendent God, who's dwells in unapproachable light because of his great love for you and me, became human. He created us and we turned our backs on him. He is managing and upholding and sustaining his creation and we don't even know it. We don't give him glory for it. We would, we would rather give evolution glory. It's one of my jokes when I look at the beauty of nature sometimes I go, isn't evolution wonderful? Why do I say that? Because it's an idiotic thing to say. Evolution doesn't do anything. It's a word to describe a process that we kick God out of. Where scripture says, no, we have a God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And because of that, it requires us to fall on our knees in worship. So how important is it? Back to my first question. How is it important that we get the details about the person and work of Christ correct? Absolutely essential. My survey, not my survey, the survey I showed you that came from Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway reveals a terrible state of the church. And whether it's this person's fault or your fault, I can't control you, but I've determined... That, and I, think, I, th I thought I dedicated my life to it, but now I'm doubling down to teach about who this person is, who this God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the importance of understanding biblical theology because it matters in your salvation. Every, here it is, folks, listen carefully. Every distortion of Christianity that demotes Jesus to a creation whether it's a human being or demotes him to a lesser God, every one of them adds works to salvation. You see, your salvation is only 100% secure in the person of Christ if he is truly and fully God. Then his death on the cross has ultimate value. But if he's really just a creature, he doesn't have ultimate value. So what he did on the cross isn't able to save you. You must add your own righteousness to it. I'm not exaggerating. To my knowledge, every system of belief that demotes Jesus then says, and you better do a lot more if you want to go to heaven. Well, Christianity says you can't get to heaven no matter what you do. Biblical Christianity. But because the eternal God, the eternal Son of God became human, and died for you, his value and his death is so far greater than your sin to where your sin abounds, what abounds all the more? The grace of the Lord. It covers you. And you don't got to go, did I blow it? Did I lose it? And he says, yeah, you blew it, but you didn't lose it. He says, we'll deal with what you've done wrong, but you're still mine.
We can only say that if he's truly and fully God and, as we'll see, move forward, truly and fully man. This is like I've been in a classroom. Let's talk about it now, but we can't. <laughs> actually, in, if you're on my Wednesday, morning, Wednesday video, we're actually going to go over the Council of Nicaea together in that video to show you what the early church said about Jesus, who is God and not a creature. So if you want to be part of my week, I would send a weekly video out on Wednesday morning that I follow up something on the sermon. So if you're not getting that, you're not on my list of distribution. Just because you're in the church's email doesn't mean you're on my list. Do you want to be on my list? Then write it in the little white um, comment cards, put it in the offering box, and I'll get you on for this week. Okay. Absolutely essential to understand who Christ is. To demote Jesus is to demote his rightful place in our universe. To demote Jesus is to diminish the glory of the incarnation. And to demote Jesus is to water down his work on the cross. These themes will all be developed in the book of Colossians as we move ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege today to talk about your son. And thank you, Lord, for the book of Colossians to give this to us. And, and, and I, I, I trust, Lord, and I hope I, I presented it well and, did, and presented it correctly. Um, but have your spirit who teaches us all things to, to work in us, Lord, to teach us, to, as we read the scriptures over and over, Lord, to, to, to convict us, to remind us what is true, what is false. Um, please, Lord, um, if I've misrepresented anything, make that apparent to all of us. But, Father, I know that... My heart, and I think the heart of the people here, is to bring great glory to you, our Father, to you, the Son, Jesus Christ, and to you, the Holy Spirit, as our triune God, who has by yourself, or yourselves, however we want to say it, you have accomplished our salvation. And now we want to praise you for this. As we think about so think about you, Jesus, that you are the exact representation of the nature of God. The exact. We now want to sing to celebrate that beautiful truth. Um, we hope all to your glory. In Christ's name, everybody said, amen.